Well, we are going to continue on now with our study of the Ten Commandments, and we're almost at the end. We're on number nine. So if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow in the bulletin. There's just two short verses, one from the Ten Commandments, and then an echo in the New Testament. We've sort of looked at these over the last few weeks, places that you hear these commandments echoed in the New Testament. I know a lot of you may have heard about the, the supermoon this past week. Hope you got to look at it. It's almost like the moon was full for three days instead of just one, but really beautiful. Uh, you may or may not know this, but that's an old metaphor that Christians have used about ourselves as to what we are to be as individuals and collectively as, as the whole church is the, the metaphor of a moon. You know, like if you saw the super moon, especially if you saw it once it got up over the horizon and it was up in the sky, it's so bright. I mean, bright enough to cast a shadow the way full moons do, but it has no light of its own. It's a rock, but it, it reflects, uh, you know, its light is derivative. It reflects another's light enough that it really lights a space. And the church sort of latched onto that metaphor to say that's what we're supposed to be. Really, actually, that's what human beings are supposed to be. That what we were made to be was not just people living for ourselves. We were made to reflect God's light first back to Him. No light originally of our own, but to reflect His own light back to Him and to reflect His light to each other and to other people. And of course, the law of God are some of the specifics of, well, how do you do that? What would that look like? Because now that our natures have changed, that doesn't come naturally to us to reflect back what he's like. And one specific way that he is light and one of his many perfections is that God, and it sounds so simple, but it's, 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 it's unbelievable. God always always tells the truth. And, and for our purposes this morning to think about, he, he always speaks the truth to people, and he always speaks the truth about people. Not just what he says to you, but even what he says about you is always true. And in the law, he says this, I want you to reflect how that's what I do. That not only when you talk to each other, but even in the way that you talk about each other, I want you to reflect my light. That's the ninth commandment. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And then from Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we come back now to the Ten Commandments and to this one in, in particular, we pray for ourselves in the way that we handle your law. And we want to say to you together that it's not your law that's the problem. Your law is spiritual. But we're prone to pick it up and try to get it to be a way um, to get you to like us or to get you to accept us or to earn some credit with you. 
or to make ourselves feel like good people. And please keep us from using your law that way. But Father, we do want to be moons that reflect your light back. And we even want to see the ways that uh, we're exposed as to how we need your son. We need a savior. So please use the law that way. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You probably know this term by now. I would think most everybody in the room knows this term by now. Clickbait. Clickbait is. Clickbait is that stuff that's, you know, on the side of your computer screen or at the bottom or at the top. And it's just, it's just luring you to click away from whatever you're doing and go over to this other place. Their whole website's devoted to this. And usually it'll say something like, when we saw what happened next, our jaws dropped. You know, or some tantalizing photo, maybe way too tantalizing and just almost never a good idea. But this past week, I was on the computer and, um, and I saw this little, little spot and it said this. It said, Bernie Sanders could replace President Trump with little known loophole. And I thought, that's not true. That's not true. I know that's not true. I mean, because if that was true, I would have heard about it. But I just have to see what that says. Click. (laughs) So thankfully, it didn't take me to a website that was untoward or anything like that, which would have been my fault. But let me read you what what I I read. Okay, title, Bernie Sanders could replace President Trump with little-known loophole. First paragraph, here is exactly what we need to do to save our great society. The information here is what we've all been waiting for. By doing this, we can make Bernie president on Inauguration Day rather than president-elect Donald Trump. Next paragraph, actually, no, we can't. There is no loophole that allows a random person to assume the office of president. That's pretty basic common sense, but yet you, Brian, clicked or even shared this article anyway. And it says, now that right there is the real point of this post. Our social media sites have been flooded with misinformation in the past few months. And while this has always been a problem, it now appears to have exploded over this election season. We are, seeking, we are seeing post after post stating just plain illogical things, and this is not a problem unique to any one side, all right? Both sides. But this is really the important part. Even more dangerous are the posts that don't appear to be far-fetched until you dig into the details. The problem with that, people don't dig for the details. Last, last part I'll read. This is in all bold. There will be many people who click share on this post because of its headline. They may not even click to open the story. They will never actually read these words. Ironically, these are the folks who need to hear it the most. That's pretty clever. And it, it, it gets at something very deep and, and very common. And that is that, that all of us are what you could call tellers. We're telling all the time. And that might look like texting or posting or chatting or singing or rapping or blogging or writing. But we're telling all the time. 
And the reality is that sloppy telling is so easy. And it's dissatisfying, at least in the long run, to the teller. And it actually does damage in the community. Sloppy telling is easy and sloppy telling is damaging. Careful telling, true telling, is hard. Careful telling is hard and it's satisfying to the teller, although sometimes very difficult. And it brings health to a community. It breathes life into a community. Um, The biblical word for being a teller is the word witness. And man, that term is all through the scriptures. And to give you an idea of how big a deal it is, and I I don't know if you'll find this interesting, but I I think it is interesting. If you look at a Hebrew Bible, like written in Hebrew, one of the most important verses in the Hebrew Bible is in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And it's a passage called the Shema, because that's the first, in English, that's the first word, here. And it's what would be used in a Jewish synagogue as a call to worship. Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Early creed of believing in just one God, monotheism, super important verse. If you look in that ver- at that verse in the Hebrew Bible, two letters of that verse have, are, are printed in bigger fonts and in bold. And it's the two letters that spell the Hebrew word for witness. And I don't know of any other verse in the Hebrew Bible that does that. It's, it's as if it became this, tra- well, it did become a tradition to print it in such a way that to Jewish eyes, Hebrew reading eyes, what you see is witness is at the core of our identity as the people of God. It's not just something that we do. It's not just a verb. It's something that we are. We tell things. And ideally, back to the moon metaphor, we're telling what's true about God and we're telling what's true about ourselves and we're telling what's true about others. But that doesn't come naturally. That's what this command is about. So let's look at this. Um, Let's think about it this way. This is a commandment for the community. And I'm going to use that word community a lot. Think community. Think people of God. Think Israel. Think church. Uh, Remember, as we've said, I think every week, the Ten Commandments didn't just appear uh, in framed uh, printouts and posters on people's walls. This is God from Mount Sinai through his servant Moses speaking to the people gathered at the base of the mountain. They are the first recipients of this law, the community, the congregation of Israel. All right? So first off, it's a commandment for the community. Then I want to think about a a threat to the community and then the witness for the community. A commandment for the community, a threat to the community, and the witness for the community. All right, first off, a a, a commandment. In some ways, I I felt something similar to, to what we talked about several weeks ago when we got to the third one. The third commandment is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And one thing that we looked at is that If you've been around the Ten Commandments, if you've been around the Bible, when you hear the words, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, what it can sound like to our ears is, don't cuss. Now, there's there's some truth in that application. But that's not the main focus of that commandment. There's something uh, 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 There's something much more concentrated. 
In a similar way, I think when we hear the words, you shall not bear false witness, we automatically just think that equals don't tell lies. Okay, that's true. Old and New Testament scriptures, a bunch of them, somewhere in the Proverbs that Victoria read, we are to be the people that tell the truth and don't tell lies. That's true. But there's something much more focused here. And I've said to several of you that even, um, I mean, I've been around the Ten Commandments my whole life. I've actually preached a series on them before. But even going back to them, I feel like I'm walking around in my house and there's a painting. And it's like the painting has been hanging there my whole life. And I'm, I'm coming back to it and going, I, that's been there my whole life. I've never noticed that. What does it mean? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Let me read you what one Old Testament scholar said. And this is, this is a short quote, but, but this is as he's looking, just what do those Hebrew words mean, taking at face value? He says, quote, the wording of the commandment indicates that the primary prohibition has to do with the process of law. And he says this, the focus of the commandment is on the matter of personal human relationships, and it emphasizes the integrity and the honesty required within the community of God. Now, again, broadly speaking, yeah, we're not to tell lies about anything. But the real focus of this commandment is about, first and foremost, even legally, like even in a setting of law, how would the people of God talk about each other if they testified, if they were asked for information so that justice would be done with God's people? You've got to tell the truth about your brother or your sister. Because this is not just generic neighbors. This would first and foremost be your Israelite neighbors, your brother and your sister. But even beyond that to say, it's not just general content that we're talking about. We ought to be honest about all content. But specifically, it's about the content of how we talk to each other about each other. How we talk to each other about each other. And I, I want you to pause and think about when... when and this may be you, what I'm about to say, but if it's not you, I, I just, I'd be amazed if it's not someone you know. When people get burned by a church, what burns them? Now, that we could find extreme examples of every bizarre thing under the sun, but generally speaking, when people get burned by the church, it's not that they stole my money. That's happened, but not, that's, not, that's not the big one. Or someone just assaulted me or was abusive with me. I, generally, at least not physically, that's not it. It's how people talked about me. And how people talked to me. And it might be the talk that was coming from the pulpit. But it's also the talk out there, God's people with God's people. It's people standing by their vans in the parking lot talking. It's people on the phone turning my very embarrassing or very painful situation into a prayer request. This is very relevant, how we talk to each other about each other. What's the threat to the community? And... I mean, you already have heard. It's that truth is life-giving to a body of people. Truth is life-giving, healthy, to a community of people. Uh, when you reflect 
to a group of people what God is like and how he talks to us about us, it infuses life and health. But the converse is true. When we don't handle the truth truthfully, especially as it touches on each other, it damages the community. And there's more obvious ways of doing that, and there's less obvious ways of doing that. Um, More obvious ones would be, first, lying about each other. Christians lie about each other. I think often Christians lie about each other because we want to feel better about ourselves. So if I can prop myself up by misrepresenting someone else, I'll do it. Slander. Uh, Kind of going on an impression, and I don't really have the facts to back it up. I just kind of feel that that's true, so I say it as if it's true. Perjury. I mean, this is rare very rare, but a situation might actually come where part of someone's call to repentance, part of someone's spiritual restoration, is that you have to be one of the participants that helps say the hard confrontational thing to that person who still professes to be a believer in Jesus Christ, but they're wandering off. And maybe just not doing it. I'll get to that again in a second. Or just... um, saying that that's not the case. No, they're fine. To just avoid the pain of it. There's, there's less obvious ways of doing it. A huge one would be gossip. And I think that something that we should do when we're together is we should try to be as honest as we can about how do we come across to people in general. Our reputation, Christians' reputation, church people's reputation about gossip is awful. And we've earned it. And again, you know, you don't have to use social media. You don't have to be doing anything online to do this. It's just so easy to do sloppy telling in the form of, I heard something, and it's so interesting. I just want to talk about it. I want to talk about it. I want to show that I know about it. Make no mistake about it. Gossip is so delicious. In the mouth. Bitter in the stomach. Delicious in the mouth for the moment. Not good for the teller, damaging to the community. Uh, Flattery. And one of the Proverbs that Victoria read touched on that. There are other Proverbs about flattery. How could flattery be bearing false witness? Because flattery traffics in, I'm going to say the thing to you that you love being said to you to get you to respond to me a certain way. Maybe you need to... You need to hear this from me, and I need acceptance from you, so what comes out is flattery. Now, I don't know if this is the best example, but you know, like, when, when, when the beautiful people post pictures of themselves being beautiful on social media, and then all the beautiful people's acquaintances and friends put, gorgeous, 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 hottie, gorgeous, it's, like, that's not necessarily a lie, but you've got to ask yourself, is is that really the best thing for that person? And if that's a real act of encouragement, or just we're old friends and, you know, you can do no wrong in my eyes because I love you so much, that's sort of one thing. But it can be flattery. It can be a way to get them to respond to me a certain way and to feed, to feed something in him or her that doesn't need to be fed if we care about them. Gossip, flattery... Let's go back to silence for a second. 
silence or non-confrontation. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament, Jesus Christ himself speak very positively about saying the hard truth in love. Now, the in love part is very important. It's not, you know, I'm going to say the hard... I'm going to attack you under the guise of godly confrontation. Tone is important. Manner is important. Timing is important. And I've botched it on all of those, even with some of you. But the Scriptures are just commend speaking the truth in love. And it's interesting... We have an aversion to it, and sometimes we'll use a biblical term to, to say why we have an aversion to it. Like sometimes we will say, I can't believe they said that to me. That really wounded me. When what do the Proverbs say? An enemy multiplies kisses. Well, I like to be kissed. Somebody that kisses me doesn't feel like an enemy, but an enemy multiplies kisses. But faithful are the wounds of a friend. Not physical wounds. Verbal wounds. Hard truths are not fun to hear. It's like it always makes me think of this, uh, this movie. It has a character played by Danny DeVito, and he's talking about this, this robbery that he's anticipating. And he says to somebody, hey, look, everybody wants money. That's why they call it money. It doesn't make sense, but it does make sense. Yeah, nobody likes to be wounded. That's why they call them wounds. It's not, I've been on the receiving end and I've mishandled applying them. But man, I bet like some of you right now, and I don't want to assume that everybody present is a professing believer. I'm not assuming that, but, but many of you are. Some of you right now are thinking about the thing that you need to say to somebody that you care about. But you know it will be awkward and it won't be well received and it's going to be a weird conversation. And so you keep shrinking from it. That is a form of silence. It's a kind of silence that can be a false witness. Here's my feedback for the thing you're doing that's hurting you. Silence. Not loving. Not reflecting how God speaks to us. Um, you, you know, this is painting with a broad brush, but I think you could say this. Bad witnessing maximizes my comfort and minimizes my discomfort. just seems like across the board. Bad witnessing maximizes my comfort and minimizes my discomfort. Uh, you know, I was thinking about this, just thinking about how we talk, how it affects me, how it affects us. And I thought about a psalm. You may or may not have heard this psalm. It's a short psalm. I'm not going to read the whole psalm. It's by David. Just a few verses long. And it's written like a question and an answer. And my guess would be that David is looking out probably where the temple was going to be. Maybe the temple mount. It's not built yet or just Mount Zion, Jerusalem. And, and that was symbolic of th this is the special place on earth where God lives. It's really amazing. Like God lives everywhere, but in a special way, he lives here. And so he, he asked the question, God, who gets to live with you? Who, who, gets, like, who gets to permanently live with you? So the psalm starts out and says, who shall dwell on your holy hill? And um, a few verses left, and then that's the answer. 
Here's some of what it says. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, who does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. I mean, almost everything in the beginning is verbal about how we deal with each other. And then it says this. The person who gets to live on that hill is the one who swears to his own hurt and does not change. And you know how rare that is? That I'm, I'm going to tell you the truth. Even if your response back to me hurts, and even if it costs me to speak the truth in love, I'm going to speak the truth in love to you, and I'm going to stick with the truth even if it keeps hurting. Because it's true. And because I love you. I mean, think about this. All kinds of people, not, I mean, not just Christian and not just religious, all kinds of people right now speak in terms of we want there to be a safe place. We want there to be a safe place where I can come and really be honest about my real life. Real life. Not the like public face, but the real private muckety-muck of my real life. And I, I, I mean, I've lost count of how many Sundays I've used the example of hearing from like some of you, other Christian friends who grew up in the church, spent decades in the church, and then maybe they fell into something like addiction. And as they tried to figure out what to do, they just instinctively knew, I cannot talk about this with my church. I can't really be honest with that community. And many have entered programs and been in recovery and they've met with groups. So they come into these groups and by the very identity of the group, no one's got the moral high ground. Everybody blew it. That's why we're here. And so we can actually talk about what's going on. And some will say for the first time in their lives, they actually heard what it's like for people to be really honest and for it to be safe to say how I'm actually doing and actually failing. And I don't have to hold back. And of course, person after person then points out, shouldn't that be the church? Don't we have the resources to be that to each other? See, and, and that's the thing. We end up sabotaging the safe place that we want. Don't we? We end up sabotaging the very thing that we want. Well, that's a good bridge to the last point, the witness for the community. Um, let me read this line from that psalm again. God, who gets to live on your holy hill with you? Part of the answer. The person who swears to his own hurt and does not change. And if you've been around downtown Press for a while, I hope you've heard this by now. But if you're visiting, I, I want you to hear this maybe for the first time. Something that, that we're very committed to as a church is we want every passage of the Bible that we interact with to take us to Jesus. And one of the first people to ever model that to me was a, was a campus minister of mine. And he's the first person I ever heard talk about this psalm. Because he read the psalm. Lord, who can live on your holy hill? Okay, just do all these things. Just always speak the truth in your heart. And just always swear to your own hurt and don't ever change. 
And here's what this, this man went on to point out. There's only been one person who did that. And you know what? He was on that holy hill and he was taken from that hill to another hill. And underwent what all our lying and gossip and misconstrual and silence, what it deserves so that people who lie, people who gossip, people who do crummy, sloppy telling so that we can feel good in the moment at the expense of others, he does it so that we can be made clean. The only person who ever lived out Psalm 15 is Jesus. And man, you talk about swearing to your own hurt. When you get to the last book of the Bible, one of the first things Jesus is called in the book of Revelation is he is the faithful witness. This jumped off the page at me. Um, I just had never noticed it like I did in this context. When Jesus appeared before Pontius Pilate, Pilate says to him, so you're a king. Jesus says, you say that I am a king. But then listen to what he says next. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. Now when Jesus says, here's why I came, our ears should perk up. Jesus says to Pilate, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And it cost him dearly. And here's the amazing thing. You've got this man with this just watertight, perfect life who will always tell the truth to you and always tell you the truth about yourself. His life was so intact and lovely that the only way they could pull off a death penalty was to get what? To raise up what? False witnesses. But he swore to his own hurt. Jesus was and is the faithful witness who will always tell you the truth. He'll be truthful to you about the bad news. And he'll always tell you the truth about the good news. And a classic example is Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well, John chapter 4. I got to visit our church plant two weeks ago. Tim Udodge preached on this text beautifully. Jesus is talking with this woman. She's, she's at the well at the middle of the day. No one's there. People went to the well at the beginning of the day or the end of the day because of the temperatures. But he goes at the middle of the day, I would say, to figure out who is the ostracized person. And here she comes. And they start to talk. And if you boil down that conversation, you get bad news and good news. What's the bad news? Hey, go get your husband. I have no husband. Well, that's true. You've had five husbands. And the man you live with now is not your husband. What you've just said is true. And he doesn't call her a name. He just lets it stand there. He names it. But he says this. You know, if, if, if you would ask me, I would give you living water. And you would never be thirsty again. It's the, listen to the both and of how he is witnessing to her. Your life is broken. You know what you're doing is wrong. 
But he doesn't even have to say that. He just lets her see it. She, she goes back to the town and says, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Was that great news? All the things she ever did? Come meet him. He'll give you living water. Man, what, what happens when that gets into our hearts, into our bones? What, what you get is that you can actually have a community that can hang on to both handles. Because if you only give people bad news, like, hey, let me take you to coffee and be incredibly detailed about your sin and failures with no good news. You're going to devastate people. And I've done that. And believe it or not, if, if you tell people good news and you never tell them the bad news, then it's like, okay, great. There's no sense of urgency. There's no great sense of need. Why would I need this cure so bad? Well, the bad news is the disease. What happens to a community when they grab both of those things? We become, we become a community that on the one hand is not safe. Hopefully not because of our manner or our tone. But it's unsafe because you know what? We're going to deal with God and he is not safe. We're going to deal with the risen Christ. He is not safe. But like Aslan, he's good. Like we can really be honest with each other about the hard things that we need to hear and then how great the good news is. I mean, I've, I've heard so many of you say some version of this that in, com- like in our community groups that we have, when a community group meeting gets good is when this happens. I mean, it's great to kind of have chit-chat, catch up on the week, even talk about sort of general observations about the passage. But sometimes... Somebody will kind of step out and kind of go, um, I'm bad. And here's how I'm bad. In a crossfire. But that you start getting me too, me too, me too. And then we talk about how Jesus Christ came for the sinners. A physician doesn't come for those who are healthy, but for the sick. The Son of Man came to save the lost and the sinful. i got to give you an example of this that I just heard this past week from one of you, and I asked for permission to share this, and I'm not going to use any names. But one of you was meeting with a friend, with a friend, not a, not a licensed counselor, not a therapist, meeting with a friend for coffee. History of relationship there, know each other well. One of you hears the friend say to you, you know you're neurotic. You're neurotic. You just, you live in your head and you get so wrapped around the axle because like you've got to figure out everything. Do you understand how often you do that? Look, I want you to go home and I want you to take like three index cards and I want you to write something like, When I try to figure out everything in the world, I'm going to... And so this person did it. I'm not saying that you have to do that, but like, you know, this person went home and said like, you know, when I start to try to figure out everything, I will remember that God is God and I am not. And then she took a picture of it and texted it to her friend. Do you hear both sides of that? Like, look, I don't want to stop being your friend. And I'm not saying that I'm any better than you. But I'm saying, I hear what you're doing, and it's hurting you. 
and it's discouraging you. And you know what? You're not God. And I'm not God. You're not the Holy Spirit. I'm not your Savior, and you're not your Savior. But you know what? Jesus Christ is your Savior. So why don't we live out of that? We've got to do that with each other. Here's the prayer. Is that like the both and of true witness that we're worse than we think we are. That if one of us comes just shocked about our own sin, the other person should be able to lovingly say, you know what, don't be too shocked. Don't make friends with it. But don't be too shocked. We're capable of anything. But you know what? Let me tell you the best news you've ever heard. If we can do that with each other, it will be life-giving and transformative. We will be true witnesses with and to each other. Amen. Let's pray. Father, please help us. What comes naturally to us is gossip, cruel jokes, painful truth spoken in jest, slander, misrepresentation, silence when truth is needed. Lord, help us. Lord Jesus, you are the faithful witness. Thank you for telling us the truth about ourselves. Thank you for telling us the truth about our Father. Thank you for breaking the power of sin. We want to reflect what you're like. We want to be honest with each other, the hard things, and then the great news. Would you make us a community in Greenville that are true witnesses, trustworthy people, very kind people, with other sinners. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.